0: His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Philippians chapter four, Philippians chapter four, tonight will be our final night in Philippians, and uh, we've been reviewing it now for several weeks, I do want to back up a little bit, though. I'm not going to worry about reviewing the the closing doxology. We did that recently. Uh, But I do want to back up to uh, cover the imperatives of rejoice always. Again, I will say rejoice, basically verses 4 through 9. And so we'll be in verses 4 through 9 again tonight. I, I want to specifically speak about prayer, the negative imperative to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known? And uh, what are the consequences of that? And where do we keep our attention fixed in verses eight and nine? So uh, we'll cover that tonight. And then uh, we will consider this series complete. uh, Sunday morning, we'll be giving an introduction to Colossians. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our father and his faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you tonight, thankful for your grace and truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness, and Father, just uh just basking in the glory of of who you are and what you bestow upon us, Father. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your Son, thank you for sending your Spirit, that uh that we now might be permanently indwelled, that we might have our eyes open. Father, we have more equipping than any believers have ever had in the history of this planet. And uh and I thank you for the the joy that it is to Uh, present ourselves before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So bless our time of study tonight. Thank you for the last two years. Thank you for uh, all of uh, what we've been learning here in Philippians. I thank you and I praise you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, We can take a few minutes for questions and answers, though, if there's uh, anything that's uh, pending from last week. I don't remember if we had a lingering question from last week or not. Also, uh, new questions. pull up my note file here and see my Q&A files. Wednesday evening Q&A. Yeah, I don't see anything since the Adama and Eretz question that uh, Randy had. The word for earth, the word for land... Why is it that uh, all the nations of the Adama will be blessed? In Genesis 12:3, don't always have answers for those why questions. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the Adama will be blessed. All the families of the dirt, the earth, will be blessed. Yep, I still don't have a question for that either, but I'll, I'll keep thinking about it. And uh, like I say, there's not always answers to those why questions when it comes right down to it. All right. So how about any new questions there might be coming up tonight or things that came up on Sunday or anything that's been puzzling you? How do we know that the rapture comes before the tribulation, not after the tribulation? You guys are good on that. You're not going to ask me that. It's all the crazy people out there that don't come to this church. that get mixed up that think that the rapture is going to happen after the tribulation. And they try to equate the rapture with the second advent. You want to know what the easy answer is? Okay? Because they're going to debate verses. Any verse you show, they're going to have a yeah, but, and all this other stuff. So just conceptually ask them about what happens at the rapture. What happens when you're transformed in the twinkling of an eye? And so what, what kind of body do you get at that point? Right? well, we know. We get a glorified body. We get a resurrection body. We get a, a body that's like the angels that doesn't procreate, that neither marries nor is given a marriage. And so, see, that's the biggest theological problem. I think it's a fatal flaw with the post-tribulational rapture view that, that says at the end of the tribulation that every believer in the world then gets caught up to be with the Lord in the air and then drops right back down and conquers at Armageddon. Okay. On that model, if you rapture every believer at the end of the tribulation, and then you kill every unbeliever and send them to hell, then we have only believers entering into the millennium, but we have only glorified, non-procreating believers entering into the millennium. You see why that's a problem? That means we can't have any babies born in the millennium. See? And so there have to be unraptured, believing, mortal saints that survive the tribulation, that the, then can enter into the millennium in their mortal bodies, not yet glorified, so that they can have the babies that don't get saved, that, that create the, the Gog, Magog rebellion at the end of the millennium. Does that make sense? Because if you rapture every believer at the end of the trib, then you have no more mortals, no more babies for the millennium. And that just that, that violates all kinds of scriptures. So uh, to me, that becomes the defeater. And anyone that wants to try to defend a post-tribulation rapture, the burden's on them. And I am highly skeptical that they can overcome that burden, but I'm willing to listen to anything they come up with uh, at that point. All right. So that's my question thrown back to you since nobody here has a question tonight. Let's go to Philippians then. And really, uh, this is kind of returning back to where we were a week ago on Wednesday night, looking at verses 4 through 9. On Sunday, we moved forward and and we talked about the money issues in uh, in verses 10 through 19 or 10 through 20. Uh, But I do want to back up, and this, like I say, will be our final class in Philippians, looking at chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. And what we end up with are these imperatives. And uh, these are seven imperatives providing a practical how-to recipe for standing firm in the Lord. The command in verse 1 is, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And now we have seven imperatives in verses 4 through 9 that allow us to kind of spell out for us a recipe on how to stand firm. Seven imperatives. And the first two of which are rejoice and rejoice again. So that's one and two out of the list of seven. And uh, the command to rejoice is uh, not an option. And it's not based on circumstances because it's rejoicing in the Lord. And we are in the Lord no matter what other circumstances we're going through. We have a a third imperative, which is uh, let your gentle spirit be known by all men. And then the fourth and fifth imperatives. These are the twin absolutes from verse six and seven. So be anxious for nothing and in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And that's where we ran out of time a week ago tonight kind of left it hanging and I want to get right back to it tonight and uh, and try to tie this together. So literally be anxious for nothing. And um and, and it's not and this is kind of a kind of the amusing way that Paul writes as a lawyer. He he doesn't say don't be anxious. The command is actually be anxious but then the object for your anxiety is nothing. <laughs> All right? So be anxious for not even one thing. Be anxious for nothing. And in everything, by prayer and supplication, make your requests known. Cause God to know what you want. Cause God to know what you need. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So we have four prayer terms right here, right in this one verse. Four prayer terms in verse seven, because, um, or I'm sorry, in verse six. So we've got prayer, that's your prosukamai or your, your prosuke, the most common word for prayer in the Bible. It stresses the element of worship and blessing for the men that commune with God. This is, it's not even a verb of asking for anything. If, if if your view on prayer is that it's just about asking for stuff, that God is a heavenly ATM machine and, and prayer is your debit card that uh, allows you to get stuff, uh, that's that's really an immature view of prayer. That prosukamai is not getting something from God, but actually going to God for the blessings of being in his presence. And this is what we do. So it's the first item is prayer, standing before God for his blessing. Then we have supplication, deesis. And uh, this is a request term, but it's not for yourself. The application of deesis is you are interceding on behalf of others. And so uh, prayer and supplication, and uh, the same two words are translated prayer and petition. That bugs me. Let's get some consistency in our English translations. If prosuke and deesis is prayer and supplications, let's stick with that. If it's prayer and petitions, well, let's stick with that. But don't give me two different translations between Philippians and Ephesians when the expression is the same in the Greek, both places. It's prosukē and deasis. Let's just uh, leave it there. Maybe we should just call it prosukē and deasis and, and start speaking Greek, maybe. But the idea of um, stressing the deficiency or the need, and that's what deo is. Uh, if you're in a bind, okay, then you have a need. And that's what we see here. And so you're in a need, you're in a bind. And you're dependent, and so you're going to the one that is able to provide that need. And uh and again, and again, it's better to be thinking of others than yourself. We tend to use in English anyway. We tend to use supplication for a prayer on behalf of others, uh, and then petition tends to be a prayer on behalf of yourself. Uh, that's that's just how I learned it as a child. But it's not always that clear either in in the uh, in the English. So. There you have it. Thanksgiving, Eucharistia. The verb is Eucharisteo. And as I've stressed many times, at the core of Thanksgiving is grace. That chorus, you can see it on the screen, chorus is the the center element of Eucharistia. What am I looking at? My projector is not on. Thank you. Well, this is a new record. Thank you. I do the same thing on uh, Sundays with GoToMeeting. I think I'm sharing my screen and about 30 minutes into it, somebody says, are you sharing your screen? I'm not seeing anything. All right. So as any fool can plainly see, there we go. Thank you. Charis is in the center of Eucharistia. You got charis right there. You got C-H-A-R-I-S, charis, right there. It's in the center. You have the U prefix, the Tia, feminine ending. This is thanksgiving. Comes from eucharisteo to give thanks. It is a grace response because at its core, grace is the concept of all giving. Grace is the concept of all gratitude. When you're thinking Thanksgiving, you're thinking gratitude. And gratitude comes from grace. There's no other way around it. If you have some form of appreciation that's not a grace appreciation, then you've got something other than a biblical Thanksgiving. You've probably got some human thing going on whereby you can humanly appreciate something on the basis of what it's doing for you or what you think you're going to get from it. But it's not the grace response of true Christian gratitude. And so think about it. This is fun to front load the uh, the Thanksgiving while you're making your request known. So you're, you're thanking, even though in time you haven't seen the provision made yet, right? You're thanking for the answer as a finite creature of time, knowing that the person listening to your prayers is not at all limited by time like we are. And so he has the provision ready. He's had it ready since before the foundation of the world. And it's acceptable to thank him now for things you haven't seen yet because you haven't seen it yet, but he planned for it billions of years ago before the foundation of the earth, right? Or thousands of years ago. So we, we have a, a, a handle on that. With thanksgiving. If you're giving thanksgiving as you're asking, that demonstrates a faith confidence that, uh, that he's going to provide, that he has to provide, that this is what he does. He is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. And then let your requests be made known. Make your asks known. It's a noun form of ask. The verb iteo is to ask or ask for. Itema is a request. Sometimes it's even rendered as a demand, like in Luke 23, 24. And uh, when we're asking the Father, it's, there is, in a sense, a demand that we have, not because we deserve anything, not for our sake, certainly, but in the name of Jesus Christ, what can we not demand, given that Jesus Christ is the heir of all things, right? He is the heir of all things. He is entitled to all things. How will he not now in Christ freely give us all things? Um, it, it really shows the, the positive expectation of our prayers. So in the will of God, even our requests are graciously supplied to us so that we can request them from the gracious giver. And that's a principle from Romans 8, verses 26 and 27. If you're not familiar with that, but uh, I love Romans 8. God is a gracious giver, and even the requests are requests that we have from Him. That's 1 John 5, 15, by the way. The requests that we have, we have from Him. Romans 8, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so God who's just waiting to provide, um, and if we fall short, if we're not asking for the right thing, or we're not asking uh, for enough, Spurgeon always said we ask for too little because our God is greater than we ever give him credit for. That we need to ask bigger things because we have a great God. And, uh, and I agree with Spurgeon. Now, uh, we're not going to repeat what we did uh, all those months ago, but an inductive survey of those four nouns and four verbs can be summarized. And I hope if you have these notes already, if you've got these verses already, that you take hold of these and use them. If you don't have them yet, you're going to have them very soon as this notebook will be coming out. But uh, there's a comprehensive uh, survey of uh, this vocabulary whereby you can learn a lot about prayer from Jesus' teachings. You can learn a lot about prayer from James and his teachings, chapter 1, chapter 4, chapter 5. You can learn, of course, uh, from Paul and his teachings, including here in Philippians 4, 6, but also 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, these are all prayer passages that Paul uses, the very same vocabulary we're looking at tonight in Philippians 4, 6. Also Colossians 4, verses 2 through 4, so stay tuned for that as we get into our upcoming Colossians series. And then First Peter, Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 5, and then the Apostle John in First John chapter 5. So you got that outline there. When you get these in your notes, uh, this, this slide here can become uh, a devotional study all by itself. Now, I stressed it before. I'm stressing it again tonight. I will stress it again repeatedly. Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, these are causative mechanisms. Causative mechanisms. What do I mean by that? Because we pray, that causes things to happen, it causes God to act. Prayer does move the hand of God. Not that we control him, not that it's we're puppet masters, or that he's bound, or he has to do, but it is causative, and he phrases it that way. So much so that if we don't pray, these consequences don't happen. It's like an if-then statement. You need the if to be true for the then to be realized. And so when it says, be anxious for nothing and in everything pray... The consequences of that is verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Please understand, if you are disobeying verse 6, you cannot hold God to accountable for verse 7. You can't ex- demand or expect that the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind when you're failing to pray as you were ordered to do and when you are anxious for things you were commanded not to be anxious about. If you're going to disobey verse 6, you will not receive the consequences that verse 7 consists of. Causative mechanisms. And I think this is spelled out in many places throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament alike. Uh, Very clearly, though, I like the example of Solomon in 1 Kings 3, just because I think it's it's well known. We all uh, know the story, or maybe we used to back in Sunday school times. Um, But the Lord very specifically says it's causative. That if Solomon had prayed in a different way or had asked for something different, then the answer would have been different. 1 Kings 3, verses 11-14. through God said to him, "...because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life nor have you asked riches for yourself nor have you asked for the life of your enemies okay and all those things that you know the carnal mind would immediately go to if you find a magic genie lamp on a beach or something you're going to rub it and get three wishes all right well wish number one is i want a hundred more wishes all right wish number two know <laughs> and uh, i thought this out okay many times for many years prayer is not rubbing a genie bottle Okay, but it is causative because you asked and did not ask. Behold, see what you did ask for was discernment to understand justice. So behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. Okay, except for Jesus, of course, we get that. Now, I have also given you what you have not asked. And this would have never come if Solomon had not made the request that he made. So now it's the beyond what we could ask or think provision. This is now the Father who loves us and who provides. And so he does get riches and honor and there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. The richest man on earth in his generation. And uh, the circumstances there. So just notice positive. And we see it in other passages as well. Understand, prayer does not bind God or limit his sovereignty, but it cooperates with God's sovereignty to be the instrumentality through which God works. The instrumentality through which God works. And he does this in his wisdom. He does this for his good pleasure. 2 Corinthians one eleven is an example of this. And really a reminder of why we need to have corporate prayer why churches can join in these prayers, why even multiple local churches can cooperate in in like-minded prayer. Talking about um, suffering, we'll be dealing with this in our background to Colossians as well. He says in verse 8, We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. That's the three years he spent in Ephesus. That we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. There was some rough testing in Ephesus that did not get recorded in Acts 19. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So something happened there where he didn't know if he was going to live or if he was going to die. Things that get reflected in Philippians. All right, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet, still, even more so, deliver us. You also joining, and here's the key principle in verse 11, you also joining in helping us through your prayers, so that, consequences, thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through, there's the instrument, there's the causative mechanism, through the prayers of many. Through the prayers of many. And so yes, God's a God of grace and favor is bestowed, but don't overlook the causative mechanism through the prayers of many that uh, the grace of God is bestowed. It's a cooperative mechanism. It doesn't bind God or limit God, but cooperates with God's sovereignty to be the instrumentality through which God's God works. Philippians 1.19, chapter 1, uh, the book we're looking at tonight. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Through your prayers. Notice it's a causative mechanism. Colossians 4.12. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. Purpose clause, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. It's uh, uh, that purpose clause of result and uh, intent for his prayers. Notice the causative mechanism. Finally, Philemon in verse 22, Philemon is the uh, tandem book that goes with Colossians. Philemon was a member of the church at Colossae, and this is his personal letter that was sent to him while the church letter was sent to the Colossians. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you the prayers are mecha- are the uh, causative mechanism and paul has the confidence to say if you join me in these prayers then get my room ready i'm coming to visit <laughs> okay and so that's uh, that's a faith prayer right there or well, you're praying to the lord all right release paul and i'm getting his room ready uh prepare a lodging so understand the causative nature of prayer it's causative for god's received knowledge of our request it's causative for God's provided peace. The unfathomable, unapproachable, unsurpassed peace, grace, and love supplies the ultimate soul's reality. The peace of Christ that surpasseth understanding, comprehension. The peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. I love that. We don't have to understand it. We just have to appreciate it. We just have to thank God that he gives it. Keep praying and keep watching as God supplies peace. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, Jesus says. Old Testament saints could know God's shalom. It's the New Testament saints that have the greater Irene blessings. And we have the peace of God that surpasseth all understanding. We have the peace of Christ. He says, my peace I give to you. The very peace that sustained him on the night in which he was betrayed, do you think it can sustain you and something you got going on? Think about it. The peace that sustained Jesus Christ, whereby he despised the shame and, and endured the cross and was seated at the right hand of God. That peace that sustained him, he said he's given it to us. What can it? What can we not endure with that kind of peace? And so. We have the blessings of rejoicing in that. The greater irony, blessings. And that's extraordinary because I tell you, when when you go into shalom passages from the Old Testament, there's no question, the psalmist of Psalm 119, he was a powerful believer of great maturity who understood the peace of God. He had shalom in his death march to Babylon. And uh, Isaiah understood shalom and you got great shalom passages there, right? Jesus called the... Prince of Peace. we got, we got plenty of Shalom passages in the Old Testament, but it's in the New Testament where believers in Christ, baptized in the union with Christ, have that uh, unfathomable, unapproachable, unsurpassed peace, grace, and love. All right, let me ask you something here. If the peace of God guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus... Do you think that's important? Do we need to guard our hearts and our minds? What happens if we leave our hearts unguarded? What happens if we leave our minds unguarded? We've well, we got problems. we got big problems. Because that just leaves us vulnerable for what the adversary wants to do. He wants to come in and tear us up in our hearts, in our minds. No, the... Uh, the, the, the hearts and minds have to be guarded. The shepherding of souls, the, the biblical care of souls, the love, mutual love that we have for one another. God's provision for our hearts and minds is right here in the living and abiding word of God and in the saints of Austin Bible Church. And to go beyond that, to start employing the world's methods because God's word is not sufficient, is a denial of what God has promised. And folks that want to supplement the scriptures with human wisdom, they want to turn to Freudian uh, psychotherapy or they want to turn to uh, pharmaceutical amphetamines or whatever else they want to do, Um, man, God says my grace is sufficient. Power is perfected in weakness. That his divine power has provided for us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. So we have the provision there. All right. Then the sixth and seventh imperative center on the thinking and the actions. The thinking verse is verse 8. The actions are verse 9. Thinking gives you a a target list of things your mind can dwell on. Uh, The appropriate rabbit trails to pursue. The appropriate sanctified daydreaming venues. All right. Whatever is True, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And that's a marvelous list. The vocabulary is important. We went through it in great detail. Actually went through it in some rather excruciatingly boring detail, but it's tedious and it's necessary and I love it and I hope other folks uh, stick with it. All right, but dwell on these things. Meditate on. Let your mind live there. logidzamai So credit, consider, regard, reckon. These things make the subject of careful reflection. That's how Wiest put it, and I like that particular rendering. But logidzamai whatever is right, whatever is true, whatever is honorable. The list of things there. So it probably doesn't include much in the realm of politics. (laughs) Doesn't include much in the realm of uh, sporting events. You know, I mean, things that uh, not wrong to, you know, pay attention to every now and then. You just don't want to live there. You don't want to be constantly consumed because you're constantly dwelling in those things. If it doesn't qualify as true, honorable, right, pure, lovely... Good repute, excellence, then uh, there you have it. Six adjectives stipulate appropriate mental dwellings. These are neuter plurals, identifying a variety of the whatsoever things presently characterized by the following adjectives. Alethes for true, Semnos for honorable or dignified, semnos, dikaios, whatever is right, whatever is righteous. And it's not right versus wrong, correct versus incorrect. It's right as in according to the standard of God, righteous. So whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is righteous, whatever is pure, hagnos, and uh, this is an aspect of purity that uh, is not as common. It's only used eight times. And hagnos is not one of the more commonly known Greek nouns. But James 3.17 says, The wisdom from above is first pure. And purity studies are, are vital, not just for you know young people to avoid fornication. Purity studies come to the essence of, of what God is. God himself is pure. His word is pure. Our walk should be pure unadulterated, innocent. That's hagnos. Lovely. Prosphiles. Lovely. And you know, in so many cases, um, when we study love in the New Testament, it's agape love. It's uh, agapetos for beloved. It's, it's the integrity love that does not take into account the merit of its object. Okay? And often that's what we look at. Not here. Okay? This is prosphiles. These are the lovely things. Things that are lovely. Things that are, that have an attractiveness. Things that have, uh, that that intrinsically have, should be the object of your rapport, the object of your fellowship, the object of your personal love. See? If it is lovely. And of course, you can start with God. God's lovely. His word is lovely. God's people are lovely. They're supposed to be. And we... uh, we can let our minds dwell on these things. The things that are lovely. By the way, the only place in the New Testament this word shows up is right here. And so uh, you've got a very limited word study on lovely. Commendable. Euphemos. Commendable. And uh, we had some fun with this because we discussed a variety of euphemisms, right? Euphemisms. What's a euphemism? It's a way of saying something in a nice way instead of in a crude way or an unkind way. So, Yeah, we come up with a lot of euphemisms for all kinds of things. Okay, And, uh, well, euphemos. So you don't even have to work hard at this to say something nice about God, to say something nice about His Word, to say something nice about His children, to say something nice, whatever is commendable. We should commend the commendable. We should, I mean, that's part of giving honor to where honor is due. This is part of of boasting in the Lord, the things that are commendable, okay? And so uh, my current testing may not be commendable, but boy, the grace of God that's bringing me through this testing, that's very commendable. I want to let my mind dwell on that, okay? Uh, But an employment test, a financial test, a marriage test, a health test, uh, you know, problems left, right, and center, Um, you know, you get this long laundry list of things you could grumble about and uh, you've got a very comprehensive itemized list that's alphabetized and sequenced and then you realize, you know, none of that's commendable. What's commendable though is how awesome our God is. It's keeping me from just becoming a total basket case. That's commendable. So euphemos. And uh, we should learn how to say the good things about what should be commended Beyond those six adjectives, we then have two nouns. And I think, now some people will take them and they'll just keep the list going and so they just number this seven and eight and say, okay, there's eight things we should let our minds dwell on. I, I think that the six form a list and then these two nouns form a summation or a summary that kind of give you ballpark guidelines for how to add to those other six items. So uh, two nouns summarizing the above adjectives establishing two basic principles for adding to the open-ended list. So we don't think for a moment that those six things are exclusive or they're, they're exhaustive. And so now we have the whatever is, if there is any. If there is any. And uh, we have the descriptions here. So excellence and worthy of praise. If there is any excellence and if anything, worthy of praise. And I tend to think that these two, they're not added to the other six. I think that they form an umbrella that those other six all fall under. But all six of those other items that we listed are are clearly excellent and praiseworthy. And so anything else you find that's excellent and praiseworthy could be added to those, those six items. Arete, by the way, is why they named the camp Camp Arete. It's a camp of excellence for the Christian young people that attend there. And then epinos, praise or worthy of praise. The summation of adjectives and nouns is a pretty high bar (laughs) for our mental occupation. It's a pretty high bar for our mental occupation. What can possibly qualify in all of those categories? Well, Jesus does. You can read that whole list of six things or eight things and say, you know what? These verses are describing Jesus Christ. And so I should Fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. I should be occupied with Christ all day, every day. And if I'm occupied with Christ all day, every day, then I'm meeting the criteria of these verses. And I believe I'm obeying Philippians 4.8 if I'm occupied with Christ all day, every day. Likewise, the word of God. If I'm living in the word of God, all day, every day, living in the word of God, not just once a week or twice a month or three or four times a year, See, some people treat scriptures like a, a Motel 6, you know? They visit every now and then, but, you know, if they got better places to be, well, then there's better places to be than Motel 6. So, uh, you know, you could at least go to Super 8 or something, you know, one of the fancy chains. And uh, But they treat the Word of God like it's a hotel or a flop house, and they drop in every now and then, usually when their life's a wreck. So they check it out a little bit see if they can pick up any hints. And then they go right back to their worldly way of thinking again. And they're they're not living in the Word. Not living in the Word at all. So if you're living in the Word of God, it meets all those criteria. It's true. It's honorable. It's righteous. It's pure. It's lovely. It's commendable. Our Bible qualifies for all those descriptions. It's excellent and worthy of praise. Also, church members... So if if Christ meets the criteria, and the Word of God meets the criteria, well, what about fellow believers that are dwelling in the Word of God and abiding in Christ? <laughs> well, there you go. Church members also meet all the above criteria. I'm not talking about your carnal church members. I'm not talking about the uh, the ones involved in rebellion and reversion and gossip and all the other terrible stuff. But I'm talking about church members that are dwelling in the Word of God, abiding in Christ. Because they also are living that experience of items one and two. So that gives a third category here of things that qualify. Let your mind dwell on these things, consider these things. And then practice these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Notice also, we have um, a consequence. When you put these things into practice, you can anticipate the, uh, the personal presence of God the Father, the patrological presence of God, because we are putting into practice these things not simply as an academic application, but specifically in manifold imitation of the Apostle Paul. You've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. All the mental dwelling in the world is useless without application. So that's the, that's the truth of it. How many people really are marvelous at their mental dwelling, thinking about, thinking about, thinking about and, and I, I don't want to minimize that because you've got to start with that. The problem is, though, you just can't stop with that. You can't just be a meditating monk and thinking about holy stuff all day if you're not living it out in application in your daily life. So all the mental dwelling in the world is useless without application. And clearly James addresses that. Jesus addresses that. Paul addresses that. It should be self-explanatory. Um, but if you think I'm lying to you or if you think it's just my opinion, Matthew seven twenty four. everyone, this is Jesus now, okay? So if you've got a problem, take it up with him. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. It's not everyone who hears my words and then hears some more and then hears some more and then you know, keeps on hearing and never misses Bible class for 20 years. It's hears and acts, and acts upon them. That's the man, you see, who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Now notice the next guy. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, I'm here to tell you, the guy in verse 26 heard the same thing the guy heard in verse 24. He is a hearer, but he's not a doer. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them. So he's a hearer. It's not the issue of hearing. It's hearing and doing. You've got to be perceiving and applying Bible doctrine. Because if you don't act, you're like the foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell, the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house And it fell, and great was its fall. So, the words of Jesus. Hear the word of God and act. The words of Paul. Think on these things and practice these things. The words of James. Be uh, doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Remember that? They delude themselves. So, all the mental dwelling in the world does not help. I'm trying to remember what these other ones are. Matthew twenty eight twenty. Oh yeah, yeah. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, teaching them to observe, that is, learn and practice all that I commanded you so you've got to be here and a doer Romans 2.17 if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and you know His will and approve the things that are essential but you don't do it if you don't do it oh my goodness And so uh, we notice this here. Verse 21, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that you should not steal, do you steal? So you understand, you've got to put into application what you're learning. James. James 1.22, prove yourself doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Why do they delude themselves? Because they think hearing is sufficient. I think that's the, that's the end. That's the purpose. No. Hearing equips you. All right. Chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Faith without works is dead. Faith, if it has no works, is dead. Being by itself. Remember, death is a separation. So if your faith is separate from your works, because there are no works, you've got a dead faith, separated. But someone may well say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith. Without the works, I will show you my faith by my works. Putting these things into practice is a demonstration of what you have learned. James 4:17, To one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. This is the famous sin of omission passage. That's why all the mental dwelling in the world is useless without application. If you know to do it and you still don't do it, you're carnal. You're out of fellowship. You've got to repent. You've got to confess and then uh, do what you know you need to do. Doctrines learned and traditions received, heard in Paul's teaching and seen in Paul's life. I love the expressions that are there. This stresses the dynamic of ministry with personal engagement between a shepherd and his flock. You know, I think it's curious to me because, um, you know, if if uh, we've got we've got them, everybody's got them. But I mean, there's there's a trend in the world today of um, of, of uh, internet lurkers, doctrinal lurkers. I don't know what to call them. You know, back you know a generation ago, they were tapers. Theme tapers. We don't have cassette tapes anymore, but but now there's MP3s on websites everywhere, and you know I can I can point you to a dozen solid men, and if you want to spend your week listening to you know every pastor under the sun, you can do that, and there are people who do that, and uh, and I'm not yeah I'm not criticizing that, but what I'm saying is if that is the totality of your ministry participation. Maybe it's somebody listening to this MP3 right now. And you're not involved in a flock. That means you're not observing the dynamic between the shepherd and the sheep. And you're not observing that dynamic between you and fellow sheep. And so you can learn information and you can hear teaching. But what about the rest of it? What about the traditions? What about seeing it in Paul's life? What about seeing it in one another? The dynamic of ministry with personal engagement. There's no substitute for the congregation, for the local church, and and it just gets uh, lost. And I think it also gets lost in seminaries that that are separated as graduate school ivory tower institutions, that uh, these kids, these seminary kids, go off and they they're 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 isolated. They're living in this uh, Cinderella world of of Pollyanna, whatever Christendom, and. Uh, they got this great theory, but then they they land their first church somewhere, and all of a sudden they're they're smacked in the face with reality of of sheep, you know, and they smell like sheep, and uh, it's just it's a curious thing to me. So, in my mind, the better thing is uh, to have a local church seminary where you get your training with uh, an older shepherd in a flock in the midst of the sheep, and uh, you realize that the shepherd also smells like the sheep and you have to smell like sheep. And, uh, and that's what it comes down to. So by the way, very soon after I became pastor, I was just a young kid. And, um, that was a book that, uh, that Jerry Edwards gave me years and years ago. It was called Lord, they smell like sheep. And, uh, I, it's a great book. I've read it many times. All right. So, um, you have personal engagement you 've got uh, i mean you notice just the the terms of tenderness that come out here in first Thessalonians and second thessalonians you 've got first um, Thessalonians two verses two through fourteen and it 's a lot of verses and we 're almost done here but um, Paul uses this language for example of uh, of a nursing mother he says in verse seven. We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Right? I mean what what, what a metaphor. What an image. That's uh that's pretty pretty tender. <laughs> okay? That's pretty close, that's pretty intimate when you're nursing the infant. And Paul said that's that was his philosophy behind shepherding the saints in Thessalonica. Having so fond affection for you, well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. And this is the element that 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 does not um, it does not compress into the MP3 format <laughs> when it gets posted on the website, and uh, you know because there's there's hundreds of men and solid men I can you my top 12 favorite pastors in the country today, just based on the fact that they're solid teachers, men with content, men with material that you can learn from. But that said, while you're learning from them, are they imparting their lives to you? Are they imparting their souls to you? Is this, uh, are they nursing you as a nursing mother? This is, uh, this is the dynamic that happens within particular flocks. And uh, you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And uh, then the father language of verse 11, as you know, we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring you, each one of you as a father would his own children. And isn't that something? That in the raising of children, you've got the tenderness of the mother and you've got the uh, exhorting and imploring of a father. And it takes both. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So that's personal. That's personal. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. We command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would, keep, uh, would not be a burden to any of you. And they saw that. They saw that played out. They saw funds come from Philippi and all these things. Not because we don't have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, that you would follow our example. So there's a personal engagement and that's a dynamic of ministry that can't be replicated mechanically on a recorded basis. Finally, when a flock is thinking and practicing these things according to biblical principles, they have the personal presence of God the Father, the God of peace in their midst. And if you think about it, we've got other promises where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And so Jesus is in our midst just by virtue of our assembling in his name. The Holy Spirit is in our midst and dwells all of us. But for the Father to be in our midst corporately, for the presence of God the Father, the God of peace, the statement is made here that it's uh, dwell on these things and practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. In Philippians 4, nine, see this is my prayer. I pray that the God of peace is with Austin Bible Church every time we assemble. That, we are, that our minds are dwelling where they should be dwelling and that we're practicing what we should be practicing. As a congregation, we're living out the Word of God. So you've got Philippians four nine, and you've got the other passages there as well. All right. Well, let's just wrap these up and call it a night. I think um, this God of peace... Shows up more often than we uh, realize sometimes. You think it benefits a flock if the God of peace is with us? (laughs) You think it might dampen some of the politics or fighting or mental attitude sins or other chaos that could happen in other churches? Not this one, of course, but in other churches where they're not dwelling on the things and they're not practicing the things and the God of peace is not in their flock. It does make a huge difference. I like the promise in uh, Romans. The God of peace be with you all. That's Romans fifteen thirty three, And then the prophecy of sixteen twenty: The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Amen. How about now? <laughs> okay. The God of peace. 2 Corinthians thirteen eleven. I didn't realize there were so many references to the God of peace until uh, I put these notes together. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. There he's called the God of love and peace. But he's the God of peace. People that try to tell me we're not trichotomous, we're dichotomous, I don't understand how they can say that when the plain reading of First Thessalonians 5.23 is uh, such. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, to me, that seems pretty simple. I've got a spirit, I've got a soul, I've got a body. Okay. And the God of peace is the one that's going to sanctify that. 2 Thessalonians 3.16. May the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. People say, well, I just don't have any peace about something. Really? you talking to the God of peace? I believe he, uh, he's got provision. There is a peace that surpasseth comprehension. Hebrews thirteen twenty. The God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep... So don't think that he's incapable of handling what anything you got going on. The God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant even Jesus Christ our Lord equip you in every good thing to do his will. So just recognize who is it that's equipping you. It's not the Lord God of the armies. It's the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. That's who's equipping you in every good thing to do his will. Every good thing. Not most things. Not the biggies. Not the super serious stuff. You need His help because it's all super serious stuff. You can't handle anything without Him. Working in us with that which is pleasing in His sight. So He's doing the work through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the God of peace. All right. Well, appreciate the occasions to do this review. It's helped me to catch a lot of typos and uh, things I probably wouldn't have caught otherwise. So uh, stay tuned as I'll try to work this weekend at getting uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And I don't know how this is done by Sunday, but try to get... Uh, I want to get it done sooner rather than later. I've learned the hard way that if I put it off, then I get so busy with the new series and I'll get so lost in Colossians that uh, one time I tried, I tried a year later to come back after a new series, and and just, it's horrible. So I want to get it while it's fresh. I want to get these notes edited and then get the notebooks printed. That way you'll have the notes. And uh, we'll come back on Sunday for uh, Colossians, the book of Colossians. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this completed series. Thank you for the new series. Looking forward, Father, to not only the material, and it's probably just as long as Philippians. It's uh, roughly a two-year study, two years plus. But we also have, Father, our Scripture memory books, and I'm so thankful for that. And I, I'm asking for your blessing. We're going to kick it off next week. We're going to distribute the, the memory books. We're going to have a potluck dinner where we can sit around and look at the material. And Father, uh, I I do pray that this summer and fall, as we go through uh, 15 weeks of Scripture memory to kick off two years of Colossians Bible study, that it uh, would be uh, a joy for parents, for children, for single people, young people, old people, everybody, Father, that as we are memorizing these verses, we're going to have the, the blessing to be able to encourage one another as your word describes. So I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.